we're, uh, we're s- are in our second week of a Daniel series, and so I'll just recap just briefly, you know, previously on ABC. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, this is what, we're, what we talked about last week. So Daniel is about 18 or 19 years old, and he, along with three friends, or is it four? I think three friends are abducted from Jerusalem. Babylon is kind of the new big bad boy in town, and they come and, and take all of the cream of the crop from Jerusalem. They exile them to Babylon and make them serve in the king's court. The king takes away everything from them, including even down to their names. Uh, but in order to maintain some identity and to be faithful in a faithless world, they essentially ask to, it's kind of like civil disobedience, they ask to eat a different diet, you could say. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of a small thing, but it was a way for them to be faithful in a faithless world. And in a weird way, it actually kind of set them apart, and the king noticed that these kids ended up looking a lot healthier, a lot more robust, a lot more uh, lively for their studies and ready for service. And so it kind of marked them from the beginning as set apart. It's not necessarily like a whammy kind of a story, like, whoa, you know, these kids get abducted, but then they eat different food, and whoa. You know, it's not, a, it's not an amazing uh, story, but it helps us really set up the book for, for all the stories to come, that Daniel and his friends are faithful in a faithless world, regardless of the circumstances. This time it happened to work out well, other times it might not. So that's what, we're, that's what we started with, but now... The king kind of noticed them, and they, they were set apart as being kind of, uh, they had a better sense for what was going to keep them healthy in a, in, in a way, uh, but now they've graduated. So they've done three-year kind of scholars training program in order to help the king of Babylon. That's where these guys are now. So imagine this, you're, you're freshly graduated, and you're thinking, what now? Well, I guess a lifetime of service in the king's court serving Nebuchadnezzar. And just as they're settling in and getting ready to work, the captain of the guard comes to their door somebody that they actually knew, and he says, you have to come with me, the execution of all of the wise men, i.e. you guys, has been ordered, so come with me right now. So it's like, what? Like, I just graduated from this three-year training thing, and now the captain of the guard says, it's time to cut your head off. Um, so here's the story. This is, this is the, the background. In the second year, this is from Daniel 2, if you want to follow along, but I can, uh, we're going to be kind of jumping in and out of the story because it's a long one. Um, Daniel 2, toward the beginning of the chapter. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that magicians, uh, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Now, as a language geek, I have to just say this one thing. So, the entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the entire New Testament is written in Greek, except there's this little chunk in Daniel right here where it says, and then the Chaldeans say to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. The, the book switches into Aramaic there, and you would assume that after that one little sentence, maybe it would go back, but it doesn't. And for whatever reason, the book of Daniel continues in a different language, in the language of Aramaic, for about the next four, five, six chapters, and then it goes back. Uh, the lettering system is the same, so you, you could open a Hebrew Bible and not tell the difference, but it's a different language. Fun, fascinating little thing. Uh, and Aramaic is actually the language that Jesus spoke uh, with his disciples when they were just you know, at the fire or day to day. So that's what the language they flipped into. Uh, anyway, back to the story. So they say, King, tell us your dream, and then we'll provide the, the interpretation of it. And Nebuchadnezzar is like, no, 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 no. I see what you did there. You need to not only tell me the interpretation of my dream, you need to actually tell me the dream itself. Tell me the contents of the dream. It's like, you say that you're wise men, anyone can hear a dream 
and then provide an interpretation of it. Anyone could hear some dream and then lay some kind of fiction on top of it. But he's saying, if you, if you claim to be wise men, then tell me the actual dream. And so he hadn't told anyone this, and he's just saying, you need to pluck this out of my brain. Tell me what dream I dreamt, and then tell me what it means. And then he threatens them. He says, if not, they would be torn limb from limb and have their families' uh, ancestral houses uh, sort of burned down and buried, ki- killed. Um, but, he says, there's, here's the flip side. If you show the dream, if you tell me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So, when I read this, I just imagine them kind of laughing a bit uneasily. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been around, like, a toddler or just a really dramatic person. They'll say things that are overly dramatic all the time. And, you know, you just, in order to get by with them, you, you kind of just have to pretend like you didn't hear some of the stuff they said because they didn't even mean it, right? So, I think this is what happens here. So they kind of, they, they say, sounds good. Yes, it sounds good, king. We can do that. Just tell us the dream, and then we'll interpret it for you. Kind of like, let's just, let's just forget that you just said that. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar, the king, says, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The wise man answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. Only the gods can do that. So then Nebuchadnezzar loses it. He's like, If none of you can tell me what the actual dream is that I dreamt, then you're worthless as wise men, as seers, as sages to me. And so he says, You're all dead, you and your families. So he ordered the execution of every last wise man in Babylon. He'd spent years crafting this whole cohort of wise men, all that money, but he's just going to execute them all. So that's why the captain of the king's guard shows up to grab Daniel and his friends. And we know that the captain of the guard was probably friends with Daniel because they have a conversation. Imagine the king's chief butcher shows up at your house to execute you, but instead you're like chatting back and forth about like, what's going on? So he shows up and says, I'm sorry, you know, Nebuchadnezzar has ordered you all killed, come with me. But Daniel has the authority to question him, probably because of his good reputation and that people liked him. So he says something like, in modern English, we'll just say, what's the deal? Like, what's going on? So the captain of the guard, whose name was Arioch, which, by the way, this is a free tip. If you have a boy, if you're like going to have a boy, Arioch is a really cool name. That's for free. The next one I'll charge, but that's just a great <laughs> biblical name, Arioch. So anyway, this captain of the guard tells him the situation. He says that none of the, you know, senior wise men could tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. None of the wise men at all could tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream. So he ordered the execution of all of them. And Daniel just says, get me a meeting with the king. Now, Daniel was a recent graduate. It would be like someone who just graduated undergrad being like a direct advisor to the president or something. So there were these senior people who were with Nebuchadnezzar. And then there was the whole school of people that were just going through the training. And that's why he didn't have, even have a chance before. But he hears, we're all going to be killed unless someone interprets this dream. And he says, get me a meeting with the king. Now, what's the first thing he did? I think in modern America, I think Christians, we can tend to do things on our own strength too often, and we would go to the books, right? Or we would ask some of the senior wise men, like, what kind of dreams does Nebuchadnezzar usually have? You know, and we'd try to kind of juice the stats a bit so that we could could at least have a chance, maybe like a 5% chance of kind of guessing in the right realm. Uh, But he doesn't do that. He prayed. He went to his house where the other Hebrew men were that had been abducted alongside him, Their names were uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but, this is interesting, Daniel we tend to remember by his Hebrew name, 
but his three friends we tend to remember by their slave names, the names that they were given in Babylon, which were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he told them when he got to the house and he said, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery uh, so that Daniel, so that I and, and, and you might not be destroyed along with the rest of the wise men from Babylon. So Daniel and his friends prayed big and God delivered. They prayed through the night and it says then the mystery, this dream, was revealed to Daniel in a vision uh, during the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven because he knew that this was from God. So here, someone has to just pluck out of Nebuchadnezzar's mind what his dream was, and he said, get me a meeting with the king. So he just bet large right on his own, on his own future there. He went and he said, let's pray. They prayed, and he just gets this vision in the night, and he knows this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. So he blesses the God of heaven because he knew that that was all God. None of that was his own ability. There is no such thing as a psychic or a true knower of the future uh, apart from God. And he remembered the story of Joseph in Egypt. He knew that God sometimes uses dreams to change the course of history in other parts of the world. And in fact, he actually still does. This is just a sidebar here to our story. Did you know, this is fascinating, more Muslims have converted by choice, more Muslims have converted to being Jesus followers in the last 30 years than in the previous 1,400 years combined. The last 30 years. And 60% of those are coming freely because Jesus appears to them in a dream. And he says, your holy book says I'm a prophet. That's not all I am. I am the Messiah. Go to, and then, you know, whatever. Whatever organization, whatever Christian missionary, and, and they just they show up at the door. They're like, I received a dream. That's how 60% of Muslims are coming to Christ these days around the world. So God is using dreams again, and he used them back then. And Daniel knew he'd done this in, in, in Exodus, and he would do it now. So he praises God, and he says in verse 20, he says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter or the king's dream, his secret. So Daniel had been given what looked like this extraordinary power. Basically, he was truly a psychic as far as anyone else was concerned. But he knew that it wasn't his power. This was something that God gave to him, not for his own glory, but for God's glory. Whenever God gives someone an extraordinary gift, what looks like miracles or healing or any sort of crazy power, it's for God's glory, not for ours. Not for buying a jet, but for giving glory to God's work on earth. So Daniel knows what we forget. He knows that God knows everything, and he knows that there's not a single secret on this earth or in this sanctuary, a capital city, that's truly secret. He knows that all will be revealed and that God knows all. God allows both good things, or, or, or rather good and bad kings, to be established for his glory, and Daniel knows that this is all a part of God's larger plan. So Daniel says to this captain of the guard, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me to the king. So here he is, a junior wise man, you know, recently graduated from like the Babylonian Academy, uh, and all these senior guys above him, 20 or 40 years older, who had been right at Nebuchadnezzar's side, couldn't do anything. And uh, so here he is, appearing before the king for only the second time in his whole life. And, the, and Nebuchadnezzar says to him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. He then tells him the dream that he had. So are you guys ready to get like your crazy ancient world mystical like dream hats on? All right. So this is the dream that he sort of reads out to him as if it were on a projector. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw an image, like a statue. You saw a man, and uh, it, was, it was this statue with the head was made of gold. The arms and chest were made of silver. The middle and thighs were made of bronze. And the legs were made of iron, and the feet partly iron and partly clay. So this is this vision that Nebuchadnezzar sees. And then Daniel goes on. He says, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What? (laughs) Right? So Daniel goes on to explain, we're, we're such scientific, Western-minded people that these sort of dreams and visions are like left field for us. But this is, it was common to talk in these kinds of ways, more poetical and visionary ways in the ancient world. Daniel goes on to explain, so he says, you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the most powerful man on earth now or that's ever been. You are the golden head on that statue. But after you is coming a weaker kingdom, a kingdom of silver. It's kind of a less, it's, it's an inferior metal to gold. So after you is coming a weaker kingdom. And after that, a weaker one yet of bronze. And after that, there will be a crazy strong kingdom made of iron. It won't be, you know, beautiful and uh, bejeweled like, like Babylon was, but it would be a very strong iron kingdom. But then, and this is the fascinating part for us, He says, then a rock, a little rock would be cut out, not by any human hand, and this rock would completely explode the statue, the image. And the rock itself would grow and become a mountain and fill the entire earth. And in the days of those kings, this is Daniel going on, he says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. I love this last line. He says, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Like, here's this 20-year-old slave who's standing before the most powerful man who's ever been in the entire world up to that point. And he's like, the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. I just, I love the confidence. So God had delivered this devastating dream and interpretation. Imagine taking this message to someone who just tried to execute you and when your neck is still on the line. You're basically saying, uh, you know, to this person, like, your power is unquestionable, but a time is coming when all traces of your kingdom will be completely wiped out like wheat on a threshing floor. Just the wind will take your kingdom away. But this new force, which seems so small, will grow and kind of take over or devour the entire world. And, oh, by the way, the God of heaven, the only one who's, in, who's capable of kind of plucking your dream out of your brain, the one who gave me this dream and interpretation, He is going to build an everlasting kingdom which shall stand forever, even though yours will be utterly forgotten. So 
that's not exactly the message you want to bring to someone who just ordered you all dead, right? <laughs> Imagine being the most feared person on the planet and having people eat out of your hand your whole life, and then this like 20-year-old Jewish punk blows down your barn door and is just like, every remnant of your kingdom will be turned to chaff, it will be totally gone. Um, man, I just, I love this story. So what's fascinating, though, is that this dream, these four kingdoms and the rock, this all actually, this, this is exactly how it happened. So in succession, after Nebuchadnezzar and the reign of Babylon, you had the Medes, an inferior kingdom, then you had the Persians, an even more inferior kingdom after that, uh, and the Greeks, and then you had the iron, you had the Romans, crazy strong, not really that concerned with beauty and the jewels and the poetry and the hanging gardens, but men were they strong and they had their stuff figured out. And so you had this iron kingdom that ruled forever, basically in the ancient world, ruled for eight or 900 years. But you could say out of Rome or out of Rome's day, God cut this little rock, this small stone, not from Rome, but from God himself. There was this little rock in Palestine that started to roll and grow and grow, and that rock eventually became the church, right? The, the rock on which Jesus would build his church. And that rock has now turned into this mountain that's conquered the entire world, that it's the largest, most multi-ethnic, multilingual kingdom without end. Uh, the work of the church on planet Earth is probably about a billion times more influential and more impactful than any of the empires that have gone before. Not that the church is an empire, but in terms of its influence in the world, it is an institution uh, not all that different sometimes than uh, the, kinds of inst- the, the kind of influence that an institution or an, an empire can have. Um, so I just love that this, like, here's the, this book was written in like 600, 500, mid-500s BC, and it's like correctly predicting all of the rest of the future, including the age of the church. So here Daniel is bringing this like slam to this most powerful man on earth, and he brings it to him with no fear. And I wonder if it's because he, he thought ahead and was thinking about this. Imagine you're Nebuchadnezzar, and you just had this secret dream totally plucked right from your brain and read before you as if it was showing on the back wall, right? So this kid is like, this isn't my ability, this is God. And he kept saying over and over, it's not me, it's the God of heaven who's doing this. And so Nebuchadnezzar is terrified because he was absolutely right. This was exactly the dream that he had that he told to nobody, He knew that his earlier diviners, his wise men, were right, that no man on earth could do that. And so when Daniel said, but there is a God who can, Nebuchadnezzar started to believe that this God was real and he existed, that Daniel's God was the God. So then, this is crazy, the most powerful man the world has ever seen at that point, it wouldn't be until Alexander the Great that somebody more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar walked the earth. So the most powerful man in the world uh, bowed before Daniel, who is a castrated foreign slave, this is absolutely unthinkable in the ancient world that this 20-year-old kid would have the most powerful king in history bow down to him. Because as powerless as Daniel was, this kid, this Daniel, knew the cosmic God. In the ancient world, you had like household gods, you had gods over countries and cities and things like that, and then you had just a very few so-called cosmic gods. And so Daniel is claiming like, hey, you know who you think of as like your Marduk, your big cosmic god? That's the one who's speaking to me, but he's not, he's not who you think it is, and his name is something else. And Nebuchadnezzar is realizing like, this one is real. So he gives glory to God. He bows down to Daniel, because that's the closest thing he can get to bowing down to whoever this god is. And he says, truly, your god is god of gods. This is Nebuchadnezzar saying this. Truly, your god is god of gods and lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. 
Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. In opening last week's sermon, I mentioned this proverb that there's a, there's a whole selection of Proverbs that say, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. And there's just all these lists of things that kind of are so bizarre that they almost make the earth shake. And one of them was a slave when he becomes king. And here Daniel is going from a slave, a foreigner, to basically the second or third in command in the entire kingdom of Babylon overnight, or just in the process of this one event. And it struck me that when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, when they destroyed the temple and they took all the sacred vessels, the, the cups that Solomon and, and David had made, when they took all the cream of the crop leaders from which Daniel was abducted, and when all the nobles were sent off to serve in a Babylonian court, it must have seemed like the end. To any good Hebrew boy, it must have seemed like the end. This long, storied history of the Jewish people was finally going to end. Here they'd been slaves in Egypt and they had been rescued and now they were just going to go down as slaves in a different empire. There was no man on earth, no people group who could have gotten back out of that and back to their ancient land. But there was a God who could do it. And it's easy to think, I think, given that so, so much of what we know about the ancient world for so long was really just from the Bible. It's only in the last couple hundred years that we've been able to dig up all of what their neighbors thought. It was really easy to think of ancient Israel as this strong and large kingdom, but it wasn't, it wasn't strong. There was a couple of moments under the sun, under David and Solomon, but it was never really a first-tier empire. God didn't choose the strong and powerful to be his chosen people. He didn't choose the Egyptians or Babylonians, Assyrians, Phoenicians. He could have chosen all these different people to be his chosen people. But he chose this little kind of small, podunk, backwater people. And he begins his process, God begins this process of redeeming all creation through a small and weak people by first setting apart Abraham. And then he guides and guards his physical ancestors, the Jews, from whom one day Jesus would come. And it wasn't a strong people. As you read the Old Testament, you keep thinking, like, surely this is the time. Like, this is the time when the Jews won't make it out of this one. Um, You'd think there's no man, no people, no matter how large the people grew, who could get out of this. But there is a God who can. And I think God's story is kind of funny that he constantly uses the weak. He, He doesn't choose the Goliaths of the world, but he chooses the Davids. And over and over, when the strongest in the land say, well, there isn't a person in the world who could do that, The Bible says, but there is a God who can. And it's almost as if God relishes the moment of using the small and the weak and the insignificant to show his strength. When uh, in a different sermon I meant on David and Goliath, this this point came back to me that when Goliath is challenging the troops of Israel, they rightly tremble in their their boots or tremble in their sandals, whatever they were wearing. uh, And they say, there isn't a man in the world who can fight him and win. But there is a God who can. They're actually right. Like there, it didn't seem like there was a man in the world who could fight him. But God had prepared someone who was ready for it. His ways are not our ways, and He uses weak people—people people you wouldn't expect, people who are insignificant or or hurt, damaged. Daniel was a slave, small, insignificant, but he believed in a big God, and he trusted and he prayed large. You could say he prayed big and he bet big on God because he knew that when no man could do it, God could. So 600 years later, the Jewish people would be asking, like, why haven't we had any real prophets for so long? Like, where are our real, true leaders? 
God said that he was going to redeem not just the Jewish people, but all creation, all Gentiles, all nations were going to be, uh, the, the door for redemption would be open to them through our people. Uh, so what are we, who's going to do it? Who's going to be able to do this? Will we have a new King David, some sort of genius war general who will take over Rome? Will we have a suffering servant? Like who's going to be able to fulfill all of this? You know, surely there's no man who could make all of these things right, right? But there was a God who could. There's a God in heaven who could do that by becoming like us, by living a perfect life and making a way for us to be reconciled to him. So there's no way that the teachings of some craftsman rabbi from the backwoods of Palestine could ever spread all over the world to every single people group, every single tribe, every single language on earth. There's no man who could do that. But there is a God who could, who, who can. I don't know if you guys know this, that the Great Commission, the spreading of the good news of Jesus to all people groups, every single tribe, tongue, people, and language, is actually going to happen in our lifetime. The, the explosion of the message of the gospel in the last hundred years has been unreal, um, depending on how you count it. So there's, there are 7,000 languages on earth, spoken, living languages on earth, 7,000. And depending on how you count people groups, there's between 11,000 and 17,000 people groups. It's, these are groups of people who are sort of ethno-linguistically related to one another, and they self-identify as being, I'm a part of this group, but not a part of that group. And depending on who, what kind of social research, researcher you are, you count it up, you get it between 11 and 17,000 people groups. And at the rate that those people groups are being reached, at least that they have some indigenous uh, believers in Christianity that can then be witnesses to their own people. It'll be during our lifetimes that the Great Commission is fulfilled, that there will be native representation in every single tribe, tongue, and people on the planet, which I just think is bonkers that like this Palestinian craftsman rabbi, like we're not talking like Marcus Aurelius or some Roman emperor that finally his message got to everyone. We're talking about a craftsman rabbi from like the backwoods in the middle of nowhere. And you think there's just no regular man who could do this. Daniel believed in prayer. Daniel said that he could read the king's dream. I don't know if you caught this in the order. But he said he wanted a meeting with the, the king. He was implying that he could do it. But he didn't know that he could do it. Right? He just said, give me a meeting with the king. He bet big first, and then he prayed. He bet big. He said, give me a meeting with the king. And then he went to his friends. He's like, we got to pray because God's got to come through on this. In the New Testament, James tells us that we do not have because we do not ask because we ask with doubt in our hearts that God will actually come through. So bet big, this is my encouragement, my challenge to you. I think a lot of us uh, North American people can uh, wanna do everything in our own strength, right? Like almost act as if the Holy Spirit didn't exist even though we know he does. I, w- I wanna encourage you to bet big on God and pray big that God would come through. Daniel didn't doubt, he prayed big, he depended on God for the results even though his neck was on the line. So let me ask you this, what are we praying for at Capital City Church? I mean, what do we dare to pray big for, both as a church and in our own lives and our own devotions? What do we dare to pray big for? What do we stick stick our necks out at and, and offer these big prayers toward? Daniel prayed a God sized prayer. What does a God sized prayer look like for Capital City? This is something that I've been chewing on, and I think it's almost ridiculous, and I don't even want to mention it, uh, but something, I, I'm not committing to it yet, but it's something I've been considering about, and I ask that you guys would pray on this, if we should pray about this as a, a congregation, that right now, there's about 70 or 80 people that call Capital City Church home, but many people are busy, so we often have about 50, 55 here on any given Sunday. That's a very small 
number. So it's an insignificant number if you consider the, the population of St. Paul. But what would it look like for 1% of St. Paul to be ministered to, to be sort of reached and to be, yeah, to be ministered to by this church, say in 10 years, 3,000 people, not in one church, but what would it look like through church planting, through planting churches that then plant more churches, what would it look like to reach or to minister effectively to 1% of this city in 10 years? I think that's a God-sized dream. And it's, it, I mean, it maybe sounds ridiculous because I don't think any of our, our church style isn't, um, geared toward being a mega church. But if you plant churches that plant churches, so just go with me here. If you plant a church in two years, and then two years later, both of those plant a church, and two years later, both of those plant a church, in a perfect world where every two years, every church that you plant is planting a church, then in nine years, you end up having 16 churches. And so let's just say that we were able to plant a church every two years of, you know, 30 or 40 people, but then that grew enough that in two years they could plant. If we actually hit 16 church plants, over the course of nine or 10 years, if we just had 187 people that were being ministered to in each of those, on average, you'd be there at 3,000, 1% of St. Paul. Now, having a church of 3,000 is like crazy. That's really hard to do. But having a bunch of churches of 187 people is very possible to do. But even if, even if you didn't have 16 churches, you know, people, like, these pure multiplication numbers never really work out because human life gets in the way and there's like failings and money problems and economic recessions or whatever. Um, but even if you just had 10 churches in 10 years, you could still be close to that number in terms of reaching and ministering to that many people. So that's not something I've committed to yet because I'm a little bit too Northern European in my heritage to sort of like just like go all in on it. Um, I've got these Scandinavian like ancestors who are very like calm and you know collected and they, they don't want to bet big. But I'm praying about this and I ask that you guys would pray on this too. Like what would it look like for Capital City through planting churches? What would it look like for Capital City to reach 1% of St. Paul in 10 years? And what are you guys praying for individually? What are the I mean, are you praying, right? That's one thing that I think North Americans, we often don't even do, that we, we devalue prayer, and we don't even pray once a day. Daniel play, prayed three times a day. I'd, I'd just love to encourage you guys and, and encourage myself to pray. They say, and here's another trick for your back pocket, the, the fastest way to humble any pastor is to ask them about their prayer lives. Like, if you're ever around a pastor who's kind of like, talks about their education or whatever, and it's just like, dude, you know, settle down. Uh, ask them about their prayer life, you, you, you just see their body language change. Uh, I need this, and I think we all need this. I want to encourage you to pray daily, to pray big, and to bet big on God and trust him for the results. Lean on God. Know that you have no power. Like, you can do nothing. And it's so freeing when we just realize that over the course of history, we can really do no great thing. Jesus says that apart from God, you can do nothing. It's like being a grape that's disconnected from from the vine or from the the branch. So abide in him and count on his strength and pray. And know that God is in control. Whether you feel like in your career, in your life, that you're King David and you're on the throne, or if you're Daniel and you've had literally everything taken from you down to your very name, know that God is in control that he will bring justice and that the long arc of history is actually, even if it seems so confusing to us sometimes, what's happening, the long arc of history is headed in a direction that God has seen and he has known and he's allowed it to be. He's the one who establishes kings and removes them. He reveals deep and hidden things and he knows what's in the secret places. And whenever somebody says, there's not a person on earth who can do that, Remember this line, but there is a God who can. So I want to challenge you to put down three ridiculous prayer requests 
or just one or just five, but the principle is write down three ridiculous God-sized prayers um, and pray it. Pray it every day. Over the days and months and years, it won't come to seem so ridiculous anymore. And here's an important caveat. Don't pray for yourself. Don't be like, oh God, I just really pray that you like give me a you know, lottery ticket that win, it's a winning ticket or something. Not, not like that kind of prayer. I'm talking about like praying for God's kingdom, something that brings him glory, uh, you know, his kingdom come, his will be done kind of stuff, and be a part of answering that prayer. Like it is impossible to pray for the poor every single day and then just stop. Like if you pray and you care deeply for the poor, you will also get involved and help the poor. Uh, if you want to see justice and mercy, do justice and mercy as well, right? So pray for it, but then also do. Be a part of seeing that prayer come to fruition and then count on God. So it's not your power, but you'll be involved just because you, you care and because you're praying about these things. But count on God, lean on him to do the work. So pray big and bet big on God. Abide in him because apart from him, we can do nothing. And if you ever doubt, if you ever like, I can't pull this off or Capital City Church can't pull this off or the global Christian church can't pull this off. Just know that there is a God who can. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I pray that we would pray big and that we would bet big on you, Lord. I pray that you would let us believe that you are the God who throws the mountains into the sea and then through a little rock that you slowly grow into a mountain that you have brought your kingdom on earth that you are taking over with your good news, Lord. We pray that you would bring your name, that you would bring revival to St. Paul. And uh, help us to pray ridiculously big, God-sized prayers to you. And then we pray that you would answer. In Jesus' name, amen.